Timothy 9, verses 38 through 46, as we continue the the subject of the priesthood, which will go uh, one more chapter. Instructions concerning the priesthood. And here is what God said to Moses on the mountain. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer with it the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. And I will consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. But let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. We confess at times, uh, and I, I confess as well, my own reluctance to study the Old Testament, thinking at times that the New Testament uh, is is better and obviously it is we don't have any trouble saying that it is but better in the sense that perhaps we could say uh, so much so that there's no point in studying the new the old testament and that surely isn't true what we find actually is that our appreciation for the new testament grows as we see uh, the very structures and and concept of redemption in their seed form and then we begin to, to appreciate more and more their growth and their progress and their completion when they become uh, full-blown flowers. And so we ask you, O God, that we would uh, grow to love the Old Testament more and more, and and even to love the preaching of the Old Testament, even though it it vastly uh, differs from uh, the preaching of the New Testament. Nevertheless, it is still the same message, the same book, and the same God. And so we pray that you would speak to us now through the ministry of the Word. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been uh, considering series of sermons on the priesthood, and this is the institution of the priesthood uh, in the Old Testament, or the Levitical priesthood at least. Here God is giving Moses instructions on the mountain. He gave uh, instructions concerning the tabernacle, now concerning the priesthood. And we've seen that the greater part of this discussion has been devoted thus far to those aspects which qualify Aaron and his sons for the priesthood, namely that they are selected from among the people, that they, can, they possess the call of God for the office, and that they are clothed and consecrated for their priestly service in the tabernacle. But there's one crucial aspect of the priesthood that remains, and it's a big one. In fact, it's perhaps the most important. I think it is, but I'm not sure God thinks it is. Maybe God thinks the qualifications. I said that last time are just as or maybe more important than the work itself. But the work, from our vantage point, is uh, something which is, at at least we could say, as important, if not the most important. And this this is something that will take us beyond the present verses into the next chapter and then on and on into the Pentateuch. 
as I say, the work or the ministry of the priests in the tabernacle. And this is something, obviously, which necessary, uh, necessarily follows. For once a man is selected for service, uh, and he's adequately qualified and ordained for the office, he must take up the work of the office. And so that's what's described here, the daily ministry of the priests. And as I say, that takes us into chapter 30 as well, which we'll look at next time, Lord willing. Now, the question which we have is, what did his daily ministry consist of? And the answer here simply is in making daily offerings. Uh, But I think uh, before I look at that more specifically... I think it better to quote once more what is said in Hebrews to make the truth of, the, uh, of these verses appear with greater clarity. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, speaking very generally of what is true of every priest. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 1. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. But uh, of this he is required, as for the people, so offer for for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. Verse 3, no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. A man who's selected, who's called, who's ordained, and who takes up the work. What is the work? To make offerings. Verse 1 and verse 3. Likewise, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, he says, this is Hebrews again. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne, the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Verse 3 being the key verse. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. The work of the priest was a work of making sacrifices. It was a work of offering. That is, or that was, the essential task which the the priests were called and ordained and appointed to do. Here is, we could say, the law of the office. To act as a priest is to offer, says Hugh Martin. Or again, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And, and, and to, to bring, that, bring in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he says that he may offer both, chapter 5, verse 1, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So we must be clear as to the exact nature of these offerings. They are offered by the priests for the people. And even more specifically for the sins of the people. These are not indiscriminate offerings for an indiscriminate people. You do not build a doctrine of universalism out of the doctrine of the priesthood. Quite the opposite. You build the doctrine of election. These are offerings made for a specific people. Those whom the priest bears upon his shoulders and his breast. And whom he therefore represents. If you think again of the sermon on the priestly garments. They are written on his heart. They are written on his shoulders. But as offerings, they're made for men by the priests, but they are made not to men, but to God. God is the recipient of them as the priest offers them on behalf of the people. And it is in this sense that they're called. We saw this uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It is in this sense that they are called at times gifts, 
Not just offerings, but you get the sense there as well, or sacrifices, but gifts. This is something that man in the priesthood gives to God. And something which, therefore, God accepts. And so they always have reference to God, the priestly offerings, to those things, to use the language again of Hebrews, those things which pertain to God. It is God who is pleased with the offerings and it is God who accepts what is offered. And if he does not, if he does not accept them for what they are, namely an atonement for sin and is not pleased in the offerings, then the offerings which the priests make accomplish nothing. And we even find periods in which the prophets declare, the Lord through the prophets, that God rejected their offerings. And so the crucial transaction, which is all important, as the priest stands at the altar making the offerings, is quite clearly between man and God. That's the crucial event. What man is offering unto God... And what God is pleased to do in response. But in this transaction, man is not devoid of any reason to think that God is not prepared to accept what the priest offers. For the making of offerings is precisely the method which God appoints to make atonement for sin. Such that the priest might stand at the altar and the the people behind him praying, adding uh, their prayers to his Confident that God will accept the offerings. This is God's method, as is stated uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. As though to say with the shedding of blood, in the proper way, there is remission. So that man might really find what he's seeking from God. But what really stands out here is, is not the offerings themselves, but the altar. The significance of which appears immediately in verse 38. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. It's not simply you see the presence of the offerings that is important, but the place of the offerings or the place of sacrifice on the altar that is so crucial to this whole transaction. It would not do, if you think of it, for man to just offer offerings or sacrifices as he pleased, wherever he pleased. But he must meet God at the appointed place. This is what Gerhardus Voss says in biblical theology. What distinguishes the sacrifice from all other things is that part or the whole is that part or the whole of its substance comes upon the altar. Without the altar, there would be no sacrifice. This coming upon the altar is a most significant thing. It means the direct consumption of the sacrifice by Jehovah. For Jehovah dwells in the altar. That's the point. It, it, may, it, it, it has value. It has power because God is there. And that's what gives the transaction or what makes the transaction a living and a meaningful one. And seeing it in this way, uh, God and man meeting together at the place of sacrifice implies everything that is involved whenever such a transaction takes place as a two-sided transaction. For one thing, on the part of man, and I'm still essentially uh, summarizing Voss here, 
it takes the form, the offering, the priestly offerings takes the form of a prayer or of an act of worship. Here is man bringing his part to God in the dialogue between man and God. God has appointed it, of course. Man never thinks in his saner moments to offer anything but what God has appointed or asked from man. But with this divine appointment, man gains courage that God is disposed to accept what he offers and to meet with man in the act of offering, as he says in verse 30 of uh, verse 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you. And this is uh, the constant work of the offer. Day by day, continually. That's the end of verse 38. Day by day, continually. It's to be done daily, morning and evening. Evening. If man wishes to meet with God, he must not think of it as a one-time thing or a here or there thing at man's leave. It isn't at man's leave, it's at God's leave. This is a constant work, God says. Man's constant work, especially in man's priestly capacity. Indeed, in this light, seeing that the new covenant believer is compared repeatedly in the New Testament to a priest, we see the value, as Matthew Henry says, of viewing our daily devotions like this, our daily meetings with God. It is to be a constant work. And yet still, from the the viewpoint of man, it is not certain that man has, in fact, achieved communion with God. Or that man has found what he is seeking until God comes to man and with tokens of his presence and acceptance confirms that he has indeed accepted what he offers. And thus, as man prays or offers, it is for God to answer and to accept and even to bless. This is what gives any act of worship spiritual power And blessing to those who worship. It is the fact uh, simply that God is in it. And if he isn't, well then, it has no value at all. But if God is in it, then the thing is blessed. And we know not only that God is blessing, but even that he is delighting in it. As he says here. That this is something which, uh, if I can put it this way, God really enjoys. Something that gives him pleasure. Verse 41 You shall offer it with the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. A sweet aroma to who? Who who is enjoying it? It's God. That's the picture here. Something that he delights in, something that he is pleased with. And so we can see these offerings as acts of worship in their sacramental quality. Quality. As, as means whereby God meets with man. And God is pleased to bless and to minister real grace to his people. And this is, in fact, where the real value of the passage appears. Not in considering the offerings themselves, but in considering what it is that God says about them. Or rather, I think I could say what God says about himself in relation to them and the people. And so it is in verses 38 through 42 
that are the real interest here, where we have instructions concerning the daily offerings, it is actually what is said in verses 43 through 46, where we have the rich and spiritual promises that God attaches to his ordinances, to the offerings of the old covenant. But we could also speak more broadly of his ordinances in general. That is the appointed means of worship. And so as we look at these verses, we notice four promises, verses 43 through 46, although I I think it perhaps is better to, to begin in verse 42. And in a sense, even though they are four promises, they all amount to the same thing. They are all more or less the same one promise stated differently and uh, with with different aspects uh, brought out and highlighted. And so even though these are four points, don't say I'm repeating myself. Uh, Actually, it is the Lord who is repeating himself as though to underline the importance and the, the rich variety of expression whereby this one idea is conveyed. And that one idea is found in the first point. And then, as I say, it's repeated three more times. It is the promise, and oh, that we could view our own worship like this. And understand, this is a matter of promise. It is something that might really be enjoyed by God's people when they come together. It is the promise, beloved, of his presence. I will meet with you. There is nothing better than that. And there is nothing that the earnest soul is seeking uh, more earnestly than to find God and to meet with him. But you see, again, as I said, the crucial uh, the crucial direction of the transaction is not what I offer to God. It is rather what God promises to do for me. And his promise here is that he will meet with me in the act of offering again. Verse forty two. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you. Where does he meet with them? Well, he meets with them at the place of sacrifice, at the altar, at the door of the tent of meeting. Did you notice as well in verse 42 what the tabernacle is called? And do you remember me speaking of it this way uh, in an earlier sermon? It is called the tabernacle of meeting or the tent of meeting. It's sometimes referred to that way. And when it's referred to that way, uh, what God is underlining is the promise, I will meet with you. In other words, we are in essence his invited guests. That is again Voss. I'm just giving you Voss again. It's his house and we're invited in. The place of meeting between the Lord and his people. And the only reason we have a place there is because we are his invited guests. And what the Lord is saying so remarkably to us, even now, is that this is the place where the Lord will manifest his presence. Where his presence might be felt and known and enjoyed. As a result of his meeting with the people. He will accept their offerings. He will bless and he will speak. Verse 42. I will meet with you to speak with you. The place of meeting is a place where his word goes forth and where it is heard. And where God is known by his word. Both read and preached. It's significant if you think of it. To find that the Lord is saying this here. Given what he said earlier. 
Because the Lord says that he would dwell upon the ark. And it is from there, chapter 25, verse 22, that he promises to speak to the people. And this ark was veiled. In fact, it was double veiled. There were two doors that separated the ark upon which the Lord was enthroned from the people. What is significant is that the Lord is saying, despite that fact, he indicates to the people that they still have immediate access to him at the altar, which was in the courts, that they might look for him and find him there at the altar, which again stood outside the veil before the door of the tent. But in order to fill out this idea, we have to look at the next three promises. God is saying, you can meet me there, even though I told you you couldn't meet me. Well, after all, you can. And I'll be honest with you. I don't I'm not sure what to make of that. He's saying uh, you can't come into my presence. Only the high priest can do that in once a year. And yet and yet you can. You can meet with me at the altar. It's amazing to notice the complexity of the situation. I confess I don't fully understand it. Uh, but let us let us go on and proceed to see what the Lord is saying is available to the people there. Some some kind of general blessing to all the people. The second promise we see the Lord saying in verse 43 that the meeting place. And the people themselves would be sanctified by his glory. Verse 43. And there I will meet with the children of Israel and uh, and the people, not the tabernacle. I don't know what every translation has, but. Uh, the supplied word there should not be the tabernacle, but clearly the reference is the children of Israel themselves. I will meet with the children of Israel and the people shall be sanctified by my glory. And then in the next verse, he says, I'll consecrate the tabernacle and the altar. That's the more natural reading. I don't know why uh, some versions supply the word tabernacle there. It's the people. Verse 43. And then the tabernacle and the altar. That will be sanctified. What a statement. The Lord is saying, when you meet with me, I will sanctify you by my glory. What a promise that he attaches to worship. Here are two truths brought together or two attributes seen as cooperating for the benefit of the people. The glory of God and the holiness of God. Surely these were the two primary attributes the people were meant to behold about God in their worship at the tabernacle. But here God was saying something more, not just that the people were able in uh, the worship that they partook of to behold the glory of his holiness. But he was actually saying that to partake in these things was an opportunity to be consecrated by them. They were able, as it were, to lay hold of God himself and to partake of the glory of his holiness and to be sanctified and consecrated by these things. What a view of worship. This is old covenant worship, beloved. Vastly inferior to ours. And yet, do you see what the Lord is saying? I will sanctify you by my glory. What a view of what it is to meet as God's people and to gather in his presence. Do you realize that the new covenant or the New Testament makes such claims many times that such promises attend even now? 
our worship, only in a much greater way. Not merely that God is with us, but that he adds his blessing. And so he sanctifies our fellowship. Christian fellowship, beloved, is sanctified fellowship because God is in the midst of it. And because as we gather together, we are gathered together in the midst of God. Which brings us into contact with his glory. And that's not a transaction that you can experience and come away from uh, the same. This is what makes us fit for his presence. And this is what coming into his presence produces in us. And you notice here again was a general promise for the people, not just for the priests. Verse 44, he says, I'm going to sanctify my priest, my tabernacle, my altar. But verse 43, the people, the children of Israel, as they participated in the priestly work and gathered at the altar. They, too, would be sanctified by God's glory. Third, continuing to build the case, we see him in verse 45 Saying not just that God will dwell among the people, but that he will be their God. I will dwell among the children of Israel. In other words, I will meet with them. Same thing stated again and will be their God. It's the second phrase. That adds something to the discussion. What it means for God to dwell in the midst of his people is for him to be their God. Again, there's so much being said in the simple phrase, just as we saw sanctified by his glory. Now, I will be their God. Here, God is reminding us of what it means to stand in covenant with him and to have him manifest his presence among us. It is for him to be our God. Oh, the whole covenant summed up in one phrase. And it isn't just an idea, you see. But God is describing an experience in the life of the people of God for him uh, or to have him dwell among us is what it means for him to be our God. It is for him to manifest himself, not merely as God, but as our God and to make us aware that he is for us and not against us. And you see here, as in the other promises, how this would be realized, how it is that The people, as they gather together, would become aware, not again, not uh, not again, merely of the fact that he is God, but their God. It would be realized in the ordinances regularly observed. By these, the people would meet with God and God would continually abide with the people, not apart from them, you see, but in them. God is saying that he will dwell among a worshiping people. Who worship at his command. That's the crucial qualification. Not according to their own devices. Give Israel a little bit of time and we'll see how that goes. When men begin to worship God according to their own imagination. God is against such a people. But God will dwell with the people who worship him at his command. It is this that underlines the importance of the regulative principle of worship. It isn't so that we can feel superior and reformed and sophisticated. It's because we want to meet with God. And we can't imagine how we would ever hope to do so, except at his command. Remember, the crucial aspect of the transaction is not what we're offering to God, but it's what God promises to do for us. It's the promises, not the offerings. That's the greater part of the passage. And so when we speak of the ordinances, let us be clear what we mean. 
In either covenant, they refer to those appointed means whereby we are called to worship and fellowship with God. We, we have another word for them. We call them the means of grace. These are God's ideas, not man's. And it is in these things, his ordinances. In the old covenant, it was the offerings. In the new covenant, it's something else. But these are the things in which God promises to manifest his presence, to meet with his people, to minister grace to them. As, for instance, we find... As unpopular as it is in the preaching, or as we find uh, in the Lord's Supper, or as we find in prayer. What we are really seeking is for God to keep his promise, to meet with us, to bless us, and to make us realize by way of conscious, personal experience that he is our God. And when a people do this faithfully, when they faithfully, constantly, continually uh, observe the ordinances then they will experience the faithfulness of God among them. It will become, again, apparent that he is their God, that is, in their conscious experience. Their experiential knowledge of God is as their God. And this is something that will grow in the regular observance of his ordinances. Matthew Henry, it is constancy in religion that brings in the comfort of it. In other words, do you want to know the promise? Well, observe the ordinances, he's saying. He also says, those that abide in God's house shall have God to abide with them. And so it always is, beloved. These are promises uh, that attach themselves quite clearly to the new covenant ordinances as well. And we have ample reason to find uh, such teaching and such promises in the, in the New Testament. The way to know God is our God. And to look for him and meet with him. Is not to seek out some mystical experience. It isn't to uh, seek out God in ways that we have devised. But simply by the appointed means of devotion and fellowship. And our constancy in them. But lastly, verse 46. We find God saying that uh, as a final thought. They shall know that I am the Lord their God. Well, that's really uh, not all that different from the prior verse and the prior promise, except, again, something more is added. Not merely that he will be their God, even as he dwells among us, verse 45 and the third promise, but they shall know it. They shall know it, verse 46, that's the fourth promise. And in particular, what they shall know is not merely that he is their God, that's verse 45, but that he is the Lord their God. He is the Lord their God. Again, such tremendous theology of worship in, in such a simple phrase. They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. We'll hold that second uh, phrase off for a moment. Just they shall know that I am the Lord, their God. At, at once we find a statement of the personalness of God, the way God relates himself and attaches himself to the people. While at the same time, the way he refers to himself as he does this. The Lord, which has been his. His favorite expression for himself, the way by which he wishes to be known in the book of Exodus, the Lord, Yahweh. You remember uh, the Lord revealing himself in this way 
to Moses in chapter 3, and then again and again throughout the whole episode. The one who is sovereign and invincible and all-powerful. The Lord who is beholden to none. The one whose will is supreme. He's indebted to none. He stands in need of no one. The all-sufficient, all-powerful God, the Lord. And yet he, in his power and in in his grace, binds himself to us. So that he is the Lord. He is the Lord, our God. And the Lord is saying, this is what you shall know. What you shall discover for yourself about me. That I am the Lord and as the Lord, your God. With every passing observance of his ordinances, this is the fact about God that will become clearer all the time in uh, the realm of our knowledge. A knowledge once more of direct personal experience. Which comes only from a real and living acquaintance with the Almighty. A knowledge of God. And here is a knowledge you notice he says of him in his saving power. Who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Yes and why does he say? Why does he save? Well he says it here. To claim a people for himself to dwell among them as their God. Do you see all this as a prelude to the gospel? As you think of what we find in those four gospels about Jesus Christ. Everything that I've been saying realized in that. And in the same way, by the way. Where God the Son was pleased to dwell, and John even says, to tabernacle among us. And fellowship with us. It was the Lord meeting with man, even as his actions manifested with unmistakable clarity that he was the Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the most basic Christian profession. And that is the thing that is most obviously true about him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Only a Christian can say that. And yet by the Holy Spirit, we're enabled to say it. But the most amazing thing of all is not simply that we are able to say it, but that we are able... In fact, to have him dwell among us as his people, to meet with us. And so what we find in the New Testament is the exact same promise and the exact same truth. We find that he promises to meet with his people and he promises to do so at the appointed place, what we could call the meeting place or the tent of meeting, which is at the altar. The place of sacrifice, even the cross itself. Only for him, that is Jesus, unlike the priests of old, whose continual offerings form the basis of a continual communion. His one sacrifice forms the basis of a continual intercession. Hebrews chapter 7. Such that, as Matthew Henry says, that one offering becomes a continual offering. By which I would just add a continual communion is established between God and man. And so the result of this is that we are now able to dwell with God. That is the great promise attached to his priestly offering and his priestly office. That we as sinners might not only dwell with God, but draw near to him continually. And not only that we are able to draw near, but that God is pleased to draw near to us and to dwell with us. And to dwell among us. 
Here is the altar to which we are bid to come and meet with God. Let me return to Hebrews chapter 13, where it speaks of the altar of the new covenant. He says, we have an altar that is new covenant believers from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And he explains that that altar is found in another place, not within the confines of Judaism, but outside of it. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate that is outside the old covenant. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Let us go to him there, he's saying. Go to go to him where he may be found. Go to the cross, he says. Look for him. Not within the confines of the old covenant. No, you have to go to another altar and look for God on the basis of another sacrifice. And that pursuit will lead you right outside the camp of the old covenant to the place of sacrifice called Calvary. And whoever seeks to meet with God there on the basis of that one sacrifice will not be disappointed. He will find that to be the the place of meeting indeed. For there it is living fellowship with God that is promised and realized. As we find our Lord himself saying at the end of his gospel. Having completed his sufferings to his disciples and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But returning to the exhortation of Hebrews chapter 13, I would make one more observation as we think of the place of meeting, the place where man meets with God and finds him dwelling among him. Is it not interesting to see how he also mentions the elders in verse 7 and verse 17? He says, I want you to go to the altar. But who is he speaking to? Well, I think we have a clue in verse 7 and verse 17. Remember those who rule over you, verse 7, verse 17, obey those who rule over you. And remember what he says in chapter 10 about drawing near, but don't forsake the gathering. Chapter 10, verse 19 through 25, they both are bound together, the drawing near and the gathering together. It's the same thing here. So characteristic of this letter, what he is envisioning is uh, the, ga- the, uh, the meeting place being the place where the saints are gathering. The idea of the church that is considered as, as a gathered body is ever close at hand in the mind of this apostle. Such that it would seem his idea here is that we are worshiping. We are gathered as a Christian body, as a church. We are organized together as a church, hence the reference to the elders. And it is in that setting, as a gathered, organized, worshiping body of believers, that we are meeting at the altar, offering our own sacrifices of praise versus 15 and 16. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Uh, and, And on he goes to the end of verse 16. And so the meeting place, this is what I'm underlining, the place where the sinner meets with God, the meeting place continues to be important. Spiritually, we know it is a gathering of the saints together at the altar. It is the cross, a place that we're able to go, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, only by faith. Hence the importance of faith. We can't get there any other way. We have no access to Christ on this earth, but by faith. But physically, it is undoubtedly the meeting place, the church itself, within her walls, in the presence of the gathered saints. And it is them together who are gathered around this altar, making their spiritual sacrifices. Or to change the imagery a little bit, as the writer of the Hebrews does. 
We are those who are gathered together at Mount Zion. Chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, the spirit, the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. The point I'm making, beloved, is, is simply that we would see, uh, if not in light of Exodus, then in light of Hebrews, how it is we ought to view our own worship and what it is that is offered to us, what God is promising to do when we come to him by faith and when we gather around those promises. The worship of the new covenant carries with it the same connotations and the same promises of the old covenant worship, only as our worship rests on the basis of a better sacrifice by far, that is to say a better offering, These same promises come to the believer in greater fullness and know that we would believe that and know that we would find that in this place of worship. Uh, Well, uh, now, as we close out our worship, let us stand together singing as the last hymn of the month, a cappella hymn number 193, praise to the Savior and let us stand together.